Heavenly Father, as we uh, come before your word this morning, this evening, we ask that you would uh, lift minds and hearts to attend to what you'd have to say to each one of us. And as we've sung about your mercy, as we, shall, as we look forward to receiving the symbols of your mercy in bread and wine, so give us grace to appreciate that mercy and grace that Jesus Christ may be glorified among his people and that his glory may spread further abroad through the earth. Amen. Do you please sit. I think I may need to go down a, t- a, uh, down a volume bar or two. Much as I love the sound of my own voice, I don't... uh, Thank you. That's much better. Thank you. Uh, When I lived as a curate, alone, uh, as a curate in York, I um, put someone up for a while when life was difficult for him. And he uh, repaid me uh, by doing some much-needed engineering work on my car. Fortunately, he was a mechanic, so that was a help. One day I walked into my garage and the engine of my car was all completely taken apart uh, and laid out on the floor of the garage. Now, that was actually very helpful for me personally. I've never been very mechanical and I think I subconsciously always thought that there was some kind of imp or animating spirit in a sort of Terry Pratchett-like way somewhere deep in the heart of that engine. And so the sight of it reduced to uh, bits of cold metal on the garage floor was strangely comforting. Bits of metal, that's all it is, a car engine. Now hang on to that thought, because it's going to matter in a moment, but uh, do please turn to Romans and uh, to page 1134. 1134 in the Bible I've got. You're going to be difficult, James. No, okay. (laughs) Just because I gave you a short gospel reading. Um, I'd like you to look at the start of Romans 8. In verse 1, we have the word now. Now, as you've uh, picked up, uh, we are, in fact, supposed to be in Romans 7. But I begin in chapter 8, because that now tells us something. It tells us that what Paul is going to say in chapter 8 follows on in a further stage from chapter 7. If 8 is now, then chapter 7 must have a a then to it. And as we work out the point of chapter 7 for us we have to work out a question that's puzzled lots and lots of commentators. Who is the I? Who is this person, I, in chapter 7? If it's Paul, how can he say, in verse 14, I am sold as a slave to sin, when he's spent chapter 6 rejoicing that he is a slave to righteousness? If, on the other hand, he's a committed Christian who is struggling with the realities of sin, then why is he writing as though the thrill of chapter 8 isn't there for him? What is this stage, this then, 
that Paul's talking about. And it matters because we always, all, all of us, want to know what is normal. When I struggle as a Christian, how much of that is normal? How much of it is me? And how much should I look for deliverance from that struggle? What can I expect God to do for me? Now, I'm not going to give all the arguments back and forth here. It's a sermon, it's not a lecture. But I will say what I myself reckon about chapter 7. And if that drives you back to the text to say, well, I can see that, or, but Alan, hang on, I disagree. Well, that's fine. I myself take it that Paul is here reflecting back from the point of view of the person who has become a Christian on what life used to be like, on the then. It is at the very least the life of a Jew who delights in God's law, which is exactly how he was. But it might also be the life of a person who has entered on the path of Christ, and yet Paul is quite deliberately separating that out from the life of the Spirit and the relationship with God that's going to come in chapter 8. Why would he do that? Well, that takes us back to the garage for a minute. Those bits of metal laid out on the floor were helpful for me. I could take them in my hands, these things that had always scared me, and I could see how a piston went into the other bit that it's supposed to go into. I don't watch a lot of Top Gear. I could appreciate the architecture of how it works, but that's not to say it was actually working. It lacked the vital spark of an engine that was actually underway. By taking things apart for us in the way that he does in chapter 7, Paul can show us how it all fits together. Even though the Holy Spirit, the spark of life in the engine, isn't brought along until chapter 8. Paul wants us to understand the architecture, the workings, so that we really finally and once and for all understand the nature of the problem. And that will put us in a good place to understand the answer. If you like, just to stay with the, the metaphor for a moment, he wants us to go further, to go faster, to enjoy the ride more than we might otherwise have done because now we've appreciated what's under the bonnet. And that description of what's under the bonnet comes in two parts. Both of them consider the place of the law in God's approach to his, his long-term plans to draw a people to himself. Those two parts begin in verse 7. First then, in verses 7 through to 13, the law is fine. If you've been with us in the last few weeks, you'll perhaps remember that we've followed Paul's defense of the Jewish system. And that's very important for him. He doesn't want any sense left with us, you see, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a kind of plan B brought in because plan A wasn't good enough. That would be an insult to God, apart from anything else. But it would also leave every one of us in the room tonight vulnerable. Because if plan A wasn't good enough, and God goes around inventing new plans, then who's to say that plan B will be good enough? Maybe we'll be abandoned as God moves off into plan C. Paul must defend plan A as the good plan of God. But plan A does have problems. 
And he's ended the last section in verse 6 by saying, we've been released from the law. So it's not surprising, he goes on in verse 7, to say, is the law sin then? Well, certainly not. No, it's not sin. The law is fine. But in what way? Well, first the law gives shape to sin so that sin can be identified for what it is. I might have thought that envy was just my natural condition. If there hadn't been the law there saying, do not covet, that's the argument he's in, in verse 7. And that told me how things stood with me. But once sin was given shape by the law, I then realized that wherever I turned, envy, covetousness was everywhere within me. Paul last mentioned Adam, way back in chapter 5. But he goes back to him now in verse 9. 9, there was a time when, as an everyman figure, if you like, in Adam, I, I was alive apart from the law. But then I received the commandment from God. And that worked in my spirit to throw up the willingness to do the very opposite of what the commandment said. And we all know what that's like, don't we? We only have to see a sign saying, wet paint, don't touch. And you just have to walk up and touch it to see whether it really is wet. You wouldn't have dreamed of walking up to touch that door uh, normally. But there's a sign. So you've got to go there. To put it in Paul's language, in verse 9, sin springs to life. And I died. That was the sentence on Adam. And as Paul has already said, in Adam all die. I found that the very, this is verse 10, I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me through the commandment, it put me to death. It's not the law that the law is sin, no. The law, verse 12, is good and holy. How could it be otherwise? It is an expression of God's own character. Verse 13 is a bit more complex, but it's the same point. The fault lies with sin, not with the law of God, which, as the law of God, must be good. The law is fine then. But it's also true, sadly, in looking at the second part, in verses 14 through to 24, that the law is feeble. This I character is sometimes myself in Adam. It's sometimes uh, myself almost uh, worked on by other stages of God's working with humankind. So Paul can say in verse 14, the law is fine, but I am not. He's not denying everything that he said in chapter 6. He's simply saying, if you look at who I am, once Adam came along, there's a lesson to draw about how sin springs to life. Then Moses comes along with all the law of God. And good as it is, when it encounters me, it's encountering someone sold as a slave to sin. That's the kind of the, the layering of any human personality. And the law does not have a the power to change that. Hence the frustrations that we get in verse 15. I don't understand 
through to the basic declaration of the problem uh, in the second part of verse 18. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And that works out in the experience of verse 20. Perhaps we can echo it ourselves. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Or it's put another way in verse 22. The mere fact that Paul can recognize that the law is good and godly is itself no guarantee that he can follow it. It's fine, but it's feeble. His own sin, he's discovered, is stronger than all that even the best law can offer. Now, it's important to realize that this is Paul. He's reflecting back from the position of being a Christian, reflecting on what the basic problem is. We know, don't we, that the world is obviously not full of godly Jews or or godly followers of other religions saying, well, do you know, that's jolly frustrating. I, I know what the good and the right thing to do is. I just keep failing to do it, but I'll carry on. We know that that's not how people are. So he's not saying that this is an analysis of how everyone looks at themselves. He's acknowledging this is how I'm looking back from the position I've arrived at. I've been uh, uh, converted, and now I look back. And I'm analyzing what, it, what was actually going on in the past. This is Christian reflection. So we can't expect to walk up to people and discover that they've known for years that their religion is useless. But it is. Uh, uh, Could we please, Thomas, have a look at this? I don't know if anyone's seen it. I think the last place I actually saw it was some sort of ghastly multi-faith chapel. Um, Anyone else seen it? Okay, well, it's... um, The golden rule, as Jesus uh, articulates it, is do to others as you'd like them to do to you. And someone has observed that actually most religions have got an equivalent to that. And you can go through the... um, I'm not going to read them out. You can go through the the, the circle. Some of them are very like that. Others are further away. But perhaps if you uh, can't read, I will just tell you what the different religions are. There's there's Baha'is, there's Confucianism, uh, there's uh, 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 Native American uh, stuff, there's uh, Jainism... Uh, Judaism, Islam, Baha'i, and a few others as well. Oh, Zoroastrians, for the Zoroastrians among us. Um, This has been apparently Interfaith Week, in which the government Quango involved has invited us to, quote, celebrate and build on the contribution which members of faith communities make to their communities and the wider society. Well, all these faiths believe in some version of the golden rule. There is, however, one problem. It doesn't work. I don't do to others as I'd like them to do to me, and neither do you. And if you want evidence, then look at the environmental crisis. The global problem is a problem in a world the majority of whose members belong to one of these religions, all of them believing in the golden rule. So when we all meet together in Copenhagen at the beginning of December, we will all agree, won't we? 
because we'll all be following the golden rule. That's absolutely right, and their affair is at the bottom of my garden. Of course we won't. We can all acknowledge that it would be a very good thing if we did to others as we would like them to do to us. The problem is it doesn't work. That's the problem. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The law, any religious law, any commandment, any rule can be as fine as you like. It can be enormous and impressive. But the least sin in my little heart is far, far stronger than any moral law ever established. And the same is true for your heart. That's the problem. Sin is real and sin is total. The point is that there's not one of us can even manage that rule, let alone the great thick book that Paul had to follow. And in the face of that truth, surely there has to be a complete despair. The kind of despair we will see mirrored in faint form after Copenhagen doesn't deliver what we sort of hope it will. Thousands of years, and we cannot keep one single rule, let alone the Jewish law. What wretches we are, who will rescue us? Well, it's funny you should ask that question. Jesus will. Jesus is the one person who ever loved his neighbor enough not just like himself, but to the point of giving up his own life so that your life and mine would be saved from what Paul has called the wrath of God that our sin deserves. See, what Paul has done in chapter 7 is pull apart the ways in which God and sin and the law and God's plan actually work at least how they work up to the threshold of chapter 8, when in a sense he's going to press the starter motor and the thing will roar into life. For now, chapter 7 is just dead bits of metal because he wants to drive us to the desperation of the good and moral and possibly even religious person of verse 25. You may be here tonight as someone who is good and moral, even as religious. But will you let yourself acknowledge that all of that is useless and come to that rail, these rails, perhaps for the first time, calling on a rescue that Jesus makes and you can't and not all the golden rules in the world ever will? Be clear on this. If sin is the problem, if sin is the deep problem in every human heart, then if it can be answered, if rescue can be made, then there is no stopping this mighty vehicle on its way to glory. If sin is the one true, total, universal problem, and you don't have to expound it in terms of the Garden of Eden. You don't have to go back in our own generation to the law of Moses. You can simply hold up that poster and say, have you done that consistently and faithfully for the whole of your life? And anyone who says, yes, I have, is a liar. If sin is the one universal problem, then the answer proclaimed in verse 25 
cannot be a little local lifestyle choice, but the true and total and universal answer, deserving of every praise that our lips and our lives can offer. Thank you, Thomas. It was also this week that the International Dark Sky Association awarded top status to Galloway Forest Park in Scotland. There are apparently only two others like it in the world. It's recognized as being a very important resource for watching the night skies without interference from the artificial lighting that is everywhere these days. Now, we do not say about that forest park in Galloway, oh, that's a bad place to go because it's so dark. Rather, we say it's a great place to go because the stars shine more brightly. Romans 7 is the Galloway Forest Park of the New Testament. It's not a bad place to go because it's despairing, but a great place to go because the good news of Jesus and relationship with God and the Holy Spirit, God himself in our own lives, they all shine the more brightly. Let's pray. Jesus said, If you then, though you are evil, because you are sinful to the core, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Lord, I am a sinner through and through. On a good day, I can be nice to my family. Others can be kind to their friends but I cannot keep the golden rule for more than a minute, let alone the whole of the law that sets out your goodness and your holy character. Sin is my problem. Jesus Christ, be my answer, and may the one who is your Father send me his Holy Spirit from heaven. Amen.